Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and... And Mayu. What's going on, Austin? already said and. You didn't have to add and again <laughs> after that. I learned your grammar, man. What are you man. up to, Austin? What am I up to? We just chatted a bit offline, but there's a closing that's happening today in North Bay, which I guess you forgot about. I feel like I you don't even you pay tell me. I swear you no, didn't well, you don't me. like check out the preamble a few episodes again. You just don't pay attention to me. <laughs> or you don't you don't pay no mind, you know? But so you bought you bought a triplex in Sudbury, you bought a fiveplex in Windsor, and now you bought a fourplex in uh, North Bay. I'm You're stacking properties, eh? Yeah, so it's a three in Sudbury, it was a four in North Bay, it was a five in Windsor, and a three in, in Windsor. Yeah. So it was a it's a lot going on. The good yeah, thing yeah, is, is that they're all vacant. Like they're all where like some were tenanted sort of thing, but they're all like, what is going to be vacant now? Right. So yeah, yeah. the story behind this North Bay one, basically I was looking on the MLS and saw that there was a property there listed for some time as I owe one of my favorite strategies and the rents were really low based on everything that was stated on there called anyways, just to see what was going on. And yeah, so the rents were misstated on there since then the rents were have changed, right? Like, Within a week, their rents actually changed, but it was just never updated. And there was actually one vacancy on top of that. And there was coin laundry, which they never mentioned at all, right? Like I had to find out by speaking with them. So there was a significant material difference between what was on the MLS and my conversation with the realtor to find out all the details. And uh, yeah, placed an offer, got an inspection. The inspection was like mint. There are small things here and there. It's pretty mint, but I negotiated things even lower. And uh, yeah, so I got 50K off of asking. How much you buy it for? Uh, four fifty. Damn, that's a good price And it's mint, and it's mint, right? Like yeah. in terms of rentals, like I'm probably not putting in more than fifteen k a unit for sure. Like it's just like paint and not even floor, maybe some small bathroom stuff, and yeah, and that's about it. Are uh, is it Melon Dave's property? I know they were selling off a bunch. No, no, it's not yeah. Melon Dave's. No, it was uh, some other landlord down there. They have multiple properties. This one's been a bit of a pain because I got them to agree that I'll be able to negotiate cash for keys before closing and also getting them to sign an L3. Yeah. So an N11 and an L3, right? Because basically when it changes possession, I need to carry that forward. And if I put my name on it, like technically it's not going to hold up because I wasn't the landlord at the time that everything was signed, yeah, but they yeah. push back on it and it's closing date and they sent me some things that they've signed and it's like, it sent me an L3, but I told them, I was like, no, I want you to sign the L3, my paralegal drafted up because there's a declaration section where you have to fill it out. Their lawyer filled it out however they want. Like, obviously my paralegal is going to fill it out like the way that protects me the most. So we'll see what happens. Hopefully it closes today because I'm not going to take any chances with this because it turns out one of the tenants is the best friend of the seller's daughter, best friend oh, to seller's daughter, which is why they didn't want to sign anything. They didn't think I'd be able to negotiate anything, but yeah, like it. It's a bit of a predicament at the moment, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> uh, Adam, assuming they're paying barely anything in rent? Uh, no, not necessarily. So one of them is paying 1200 a month for a two bedroom. The market in this area, because this area is like a nicer area, is about 1500 So it's not drastically below. Yeah, Another yeah. one is paying 1100 That one's about 1500 as well. One of them was vacant, but when they stated it on the MLS, they said they were paying 700 that market is about twelve to thirteen hundred, but it's vacant actually. And the last one, the guy's paying seven hundred for a one bed, but that should be about like eleven hundred. And then there's coin laundry, which they never counted as well. So they all signed cash for keys. I'm assuming you paid them the cash. Yeah, that's right. So it's five thousand five hundred for one unit, five thousand five hundred for another unit, and two thousand for the third unit. Damn. Okay. So we yeah. got thirteen grand or something like that. So if this doesn't close for whatever reason, do you stand at risk of losing your 13 grand or whatever? No, so I don't give people all everything up front. It's like a deposit. And then it's like, usually I give a thousand up front and the remainder upon whenever okay, they okay. leave. So yeah, you're right. Like I might end up losing it. But the big difference is, is that I know what situation you talk about. You're talking about like Alvin's situation. For those who don't know, follow Alvin on, oh, maybe you don't know. Maybe so not. Alvin negotiated it and the seller like didn't do the deal because it was supposed to be a triplex, but it turned out to be a, a single family home. 
right? So like there's very little recourse and Alvin ended up losing his money, unfortunately. In my situation, it's a bit different. Like I could take legal recourse because it says there that legally they would sign the L11 and L3s and whatever. I put that on the APS. So if they didn't do that, they're breaching contract, yeah, right? Yeah. So like it's a little bit different in that situation. But you're right. Like I'm not going to make a freaking fit about like $3,000. So I will end up losing hit. Yeah, it's all just a bluffing game as well. You just make the argument that you could and see yeah. how far it gets. I feel like they're going to ultimately they'll sign the revised L3 as long as it doesn't open them up to any serious liability. Yeah, so I don't even know how to pronounce this word. I'm going to come off as an idiot, but I'm an Asian boy who just is not very good at English. Indem- indemnity? In- 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 indem- indemnification? Indemnification? Indemnity? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> they made me sign a-, a form that their lawyer drafted up saying that if the tenants go after them for anything or whatever, then they are not liable for any of that. That like, comes over to me. So I was like, that's fine. That's understandable. Damn. Yeah. So how many units is that? You're stacking what, 12 or 13 units or 15? or Yeah. So five unit has closed. I just found the old lady a place and there's an ODSP tenant. I spoke to her on the phone at 8 p.m. yesterday. Her budget's 1800. So I don't know how the fuck she's affording that unless she's some drug, sort of drug. Drug dealer, eh? <laughs> yeah. I don't know what it is, but like she's like 1800 my budget a month. I'm like, Jesus Christ. Okay. Like I can get you. Like, sure. But she said either way, she'll leave at the end of the month because she doesn't mind moving back home with her family. And the other three units are vacant now. The triplex vacancy was supposed to be at January, but all of them left prior to closing. So the work is getting started on that already. Yeah. And then this four unit closing supposed to be today. Vacancy supposed to be the end of January. The other triplex in Sudbury, it's all vacant. So the work has started for that. The good thing is, is that it's not the same construction team because it's in different cities. So like it's just multiple on the go. And the only extensive project is going to be the five unit. Everything else is like just lipstick stuff. So it's not too much of a concern. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of updates on my end, right? Like everything is <laughs> when this one closes, all four of them are closed. And then it's just like getting through with the project. How about you? How's everything with you? It's good, man. I think this last week, I've just been fucking on the road for way too much time. And I'm trying to like just sit my ass at home. Today's probably the first day that I'm home during the day, which is kind of fucking nice. Real estate wise. You're meeting appraisers, right? Like you have to meet the appraiser in Toronto. Yeah. Yeah. That was a unique circumstance. That's probably the first like appraisal that I've gone to for a client because I was just like, mind blowing about why this appraiser gave a property like I think it was like a 20 year useful life yeah which then fucks up the entire mortgage so I was like oh, fuck this shit i got my own appraiser to go back like another appraiser and like we walked through the house i'm like this house is perfectly fucking fine but this appraiser is being a dickwad so we're expecting that report today so that'll be fine real estate wise i mean i guess i just had the two projects which seems a lot easier now compared to what you're talking about here but we are starting our renovations finally on the triplex. Like that back addition is what we started on earlier, but finally doing the front two units as well. And then obviously the Minden project. I don't know if I talked about my delays on that one. That kind of fucked Yeah, you did. You mentioned yeah, that yeah. you pretty much have to wait to January now, right? Yeah. So this week should be the last you go back to work happening. And then we're just going to kind of chill out until January. I'll get my designer to go in in the next two weeks and just kind of design the place and figure out the finish and shit like that. Cause I don't know, man. Like I have zero artistic skills. And if I look at a place and just drywall, I'm like, yeah, just put some gray vinyl plank in here, white kitchen, and you're done. But I think in the Airbnb world where you want to... It matters. Yeah. Have things <laughs> you can't do cookie better. cutter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like I was talking to a designer. She was like, yeah, like put in a nice kitchen, like not brown, but like, you know, these like light beige type floors. Like, I don't sure. know. Yeah, yeah. It's called white oak. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's what I do now exclusively oak, but it's more expensive than gray. Now gray, I see it on discount and the oak is much more pricier. Yeah. Like we have white oak hardwood, but you, you've been able to find white oak LVP. Yeah. I use white oak LVP. It's it's in all the big box stores. You can just find it yeah. there, but it's like on the cheaper end, it's two ninety nine per square foot, a uh, square foot, not square foot. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's lunchtime. So All right, man. <laughs> anyways, let's jump into today's episode. We have Pre and Dusan. And just a quick update from Pre and Dusan's end before we even like give the quick bio. Pre and Dusan, like in this episode, you're going to hear they're closing on an assisted living facility. We talk about the numbers a bit. The closing is actually coming up very soon. I think it's actually, Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, it's this month, right? It's supposed to be end of December, but obviously business transactions, you never know how it'll go and it might get pushed yeah, out, right? But they're fully funded at this point. So if you guys, well, you would have all missed out. Let's not speak for that. <laughs> I don't know if they're fully funded, but um, okay. they're, they're definitely firm on the deal. And I'm pretty sure they have most of their capital figured out, right? But sure. if anyone wants to message them, just message them directly. On the yeah, book. there's so much that we dive into here, right? Brian Dusan, they didn't get 
they got started in real estate not too long ago. Like I, I would say even even uh, after right. Mayu and I got started and they started with single families, a JB with us, moved on to the multifamily space, crushed that a bit. And then now just kept on leveling up. They have an entrepreneur spirit. They have other businesses outside of real estate as well. But we dive really into the uh, assisted living facility because it is quite an interesting topic. They're a co-investor with Jane Fernandez on a storage facility. So there's just so much that we get into this episode. Very unique strategies on how you can take real estate and apply it into other asset classes as well. You don't want to miss this one out. Make sure to tune in and enjoy. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guests and good friends, Dusan and Pri. How's it going, guys? Good. How are you guys doing? Hey, we got to figure out who's going to talk first here. <laughs> for our audience uh, that probably doesn't know your, your story, like myself and Austin know you guys pretty well now, but for anyone else, you guys want to take a turn, like each just kind of explaining how you guys got started in real estate, what attracted you to that class and, and what you guys are up to today? Yeah, so I'll, I'll go first. First, I want to say, Mayu, Austin, like, thank you for having us here. It's uh, <laughs> It's really interesting that I think we listened to, I personally listened to Rise, probably like one of my like first two podcasts and then uh, just really trying to connect at that point. And I'm like, oh, these guys are doing some like surreal stuff, right? You continue to do surreal stuff, but at the time it was like, oh, this is crazy. And then now to be actually be on the podcast, uh, it's a big deal. So, so thank you. But for those who, who don't know me, uh, Priya Kumar, a real estate investor now, a father journey started back in like 2014 pre-cons what we considered maybe investments at the time of a few things with friends, which sort of taught you to have good structures and things of that nature. And then really I've, over the last two years, started investing as a true investor focused on the bear model, multifamily, then larger multifamilies where we realized like true wealth can be generated. And then a couple other niche asset classes since then. And I'm happy to go into details as we go this. Cool. And I'll go next. Um, so yeah, thanks everyone. Thank you, Mayu. Thank you, Austin, for having us on. A little bit about myself. My name is Dusan. Pri and I, we both went to the University of Waterloo, graduated in management engineering there. And then ever since then, I've been following the corporate ladder and I currently still own my full-time job at Amazon. So I currently oversee close to about maybe a thousand people between associate, hourly associates to the leadership team and everything in between there. My real estate journey started back in 2013, back as a student in Waterloo. And me and a couple of buddies, we were looking at pre-cons and seeing, hey, no, if we're paying rent right now, why don't we be on the other side and just collect some cash? And we went to a pre-development a condo. And you know how you do the corporate, like that structure, you know, you put their 5% down and then there's payment structures accordingly. And halfway through, they decided to return our money to us. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you know what, we're not going to build this. And that was my short-lived real estate journey. Ever since then, I was like, you know what? There's no way I'm jumping back into real estate. And then so I pivoted away. I moved my capital to stocks and then made some money there. And then back in 2019, when I bought my primary residence, that's when I started to, you know, go back into that real estate game. And Pri, uh, he actually came up to my house one day, him and a couple of friends. And we were just talking and he told me about his like family's portfolio in terms of what they have in Scarborough. And that really intrigued me. Like, okay, he's on to bigger things. So after he left, you know, I gave him a call when he went home and I asked him, Hey, are you looking to sell your primary or your parents' houses? And if you are, let me know because I'm ready to buy it. And for me, I was thinking like, okay, let me just skip the middleman with the commission. You know, you know, they say you make money on the buy, right? So I thought, okay, let's try to you know, squeeze a deal here. And pretty quickly was like, no way you're crazy. Like, and he started like talking about like generational wealth and like how he wants to hold these assets. So we quickly aligned on like, you know, our values. And then what we were trying to strive towards individually, we're like, you know what, might as well put two heads together. And that's where Lou Ventures was formed. And the name behind Lou Ventures is really like, because we both went to Waterloo, we tagged on that Lou, that famous Lou word. And uh, we, we tagged it to the Ventures. So that's how Lou Ventures was formed. That's awesome. That's amazing. So you guys have really only been investing seriously for two years, but have been climbing the levels of investment classes pretty rapidly. We're going to be talking about a lot of interesting things throughout this podcast. Let's get started with the basics. When you were starting investing, what area did you start in? What type of properties were you guys buying? Yeah. So I think for me personally, it started with what my family was doing. My dad's a blue collar worker, but he always believed in like owning land. And then that comes from the mindset or that sort of belief, maybe from a cultural perspective as well. Right. And at the time, like things didn't make sense. I was just like, why do we have more than one property? How are we going to manage this? And, and things of that nature. But he's just like, you know what? it will make it make sense. And that's what got me into property management. We manage our 
own personal properties and I learned a ton doing that. Then the interest in real estate really came from there, got into pre-cons, both like condos, probably something I won't really be doing, but then other type of assets as well, like townhouses and things of that nature. The journey then from a true purchase perspective really just moved into a primary residence. I was able to leverage the equity from primary residence to then invest into other properties. So we started buying multifamily out in Windsor and Sudbury. That's something we grew essentially through the Burr model, all of our own sort of like, we didn't do any JVs at the end of the day. So we kept it all within the company's equity. So it's everything we own. Oh, actually, you know what? I actually forgot to mention our first property, our, our first property in Windsor was actually a JV with you guys. So that's actually a big milestone. I, I think <laughs> I forgot to, I forgot to mention there, which was important in, getting, the us, in getting us going. We bought two in the same month. <laughs> okay. 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 That's what I ended yeah. up happening. And then I remember getting a call from you. You're like, you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want to take on two properties when it's your first time doing the burn? And like you walk me through it and we're like, you know what? Like we're super eager. We'll figure it out. And that was good. I think just relying on that expertise and knowledge. And then I don't know if you remember the conversation, but I remember when we had the conversation, you, were, you guys were comfortable with us being active as well in the space, like really being involved. And that was instrumental for us to like get that level of comfort. And we always say when we have our capital invested in the deal, then we're going to truly learn. And like that was our way of taking action or getting educated in the space as well. So yeah, you know what? That's a true instrumental moment. And then after that, we grew our portfolio from there. With the family, we got into the vacation rental space. Just when we started understanding how financing works, what we can truly do, how corporations work, how to structure things, having good lawyers, having good accountants. We have an engineering background, so we run our numbers very conservatively. Yes, there's some risk in what we do, but it's sort of a calculated risk. But when we ran our numbers for multifamily, it just like, it stopped making sense. A lot of it just stopped making sense. What we realized we liked is the commercial space, things that we have a lot more control over. It's based on asset, your net worth, essentially, and then what the building can essentially produce. But what are other spaces where we can have a lot more control? That's where self-storage came into play, where we, you know, you look at the LTB laws or the LTB rules in Ontario versus something like self-storage, where it's a true commercial lease and you have a lot more control over it. Different considerations there on how you attract tenants. Anyways, we, we can get into that. But that's something that was a really real interest to us. So we invested in an opportunity out in Perry Sound. And then as of recent, we're now looking at, call it retirement homes, but right now the actual opportunity is an assisted living facility. So there's different levels to this. And where we realized that was important is because we wanted to own a business. So at the end of the day, we want to own a business that cash flows and we can scale to important elements. And then we wanted to own the underlying real estate. So we didn't want to just get into like a franchise for a restaurant, as an example, that was a business, but you don't own that real estate. So we always think about what other opportunities can come up. If the business doesn't work out, we know the real estate and the land always has value, right? So those are the type of opportunities we're looking at at this point. That's the journey. A lot of it joined with Dusan at, at some point. Yeah. So he might have some similar things to say. Yeah. And I think for the most part, you know, Pris captured it. I think, you know, our first deal that we did with you guys I think that lasted like three months before we went to the refi stage. And I was asking Pri, I'm like, I'm looking at these numbers. I'm like, is this legal? That was literally one of my first <laughs> questions. I'm like, we're going in there. We're doing the work. It's not that expensive as an entry point. We're doing a good refi. We pulled our money out. You know, we put out, I think we pulled out money and some on that one. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I asked, is this legal? And then literally just turned to switch in my head. I'm like, okay, this is something that we can actually scale. Once I found out it was legal. <laughs> and that scaling model for us was just, that's where our mindset changed. So we went from, you know, single family to a duplex, to a fourplex, to a sixplex, to now looking at commercial stuff and self-storage units and now the assisted living facility. There's a lot to unpack there. A yeah, lot. Yeah. We're going to break this down into two parts yeah. or two parts of the pod, the same pod, podcast, but whatever. So we'll talk about the residential side first, and then I think we can definitely dive into the commercial side. So I think the rate at which you guys scaled was definitely really aggressive, right? So you guys... I wouldn't even say scale. It's like jumping from single family yeah, yeah, duplex yeah. since making those big jumps, right? Right. So, okay. So let's break down first. How did you guys manage it? How did you guys source deals? And then what were some of the pain points in scaling yeah. that fast? Yeah. So how do we source it? Sourcing okay. for us was like relationships. We knew off market, we were signed up for all the wholesaling deal wholesaler lists out there. And like, those are things we analyze on a regular basis. 
but for us, I think what really works for us is relationships. And so like just key relationships with realtors, giving them the confidence and letting them know that, giving them the confidence that we'll essentially close on these deals. So a lot of times, I think something we've sort of stayed tried and true at is like, if we're going to put something on contract, it's something we're likely going to go after. We're going to close it. So it's just part of our values and what we've been able to showcase. And so the relationship has been really where the realtors will bring deals to us. Not necessarily on market. I think half of our properties were probably off market, but even the on market ones are like just good opportunities. So if we had a good relationship with the realtor, things went off market, on market, the deal fell through because of some reason, most people stopped looking at that deal, but our realtor is still on that one. And then he'll bring that back to us, for example. Right. And then now it's almost like dealing with it off market where you just directly go to the seller and you have an opportunity to purchase it. So those are somehow some ways that deals worked out. We also took some high risks on some things because at a certain point, no one is putting any conditions on deal or on profits. For example, one of our six plexes, we just discounted 60K. So we like a sight unseen. We're just like, okay, the worst that's going to happen is we're going to have to spend 60K on some pieces of equipment and then it'll still work either way for us. So we just put in an offer, no conditions. I don't really advise this, but at the end of the day, we end up getting the deal and that was on market. Sometimes it's very, very strategic. Like, so our realtors would share that in a hot market, they didn't really like out of town investors coming in. They wanted to use a local realtor. And like, sometimes it's just those strategic relationships that just worked in our favor. So for us, I think that relationship is, and that's how we like sourced management. Everything is teams for us. So like never been a subway and we just operate with the teams that we have there. It's a relationship game and we set our processes. So both Dusan and I are very like, operational oriented as well. So we like document and we set our processes and we try to make sure that they follow it. We know things don't go to a T, but at least we know it's there. Something doesn't go right. Then we go back to the process and we like, what went wrong? We know there are things we can't control, but that's why we're very patient. So like we had faucets be repaired at like $400 a piece. Those are things we have to accept. <laughs> Those are things just come up. We'll improve them as part of a process. I'd still rather not go there and buy a $50 faucet and install it. I think that's the main point, yeah. right? So that's what we've been able to do. I can see Austin's itching to share a story. I feel like I already know what this is, but... <laughs> no, no, I, was, I wasn't even going to share the story. But if you mention it, I will share it. <laughs> <laughs> no, basically, like literally right before this, we have a property in Windsor where they're building us 225 for a clogged drain. And we're like, man, right. just get a fucking snake and put it in this thing and just fucking figure it out, right? But the third part to that question was uh, pain points, right? So like, I'm sure there were things that work really well. Market does really well. Everyone's making money, but I'm like, there's operational pain points. I think that no one really talks about that's involved in scaling fast. Like for example, like we do a bunch of like single family duplex triplexes and you can scale fast at that. And the pain points there is one thing, but you guys are also taking leaps, right? So I'm curious what the pain points were along the way with that kind of strategy. Yeah. I think I'll add on that. There's a couple of pain points. First off is as you mentioned, like getting the right team in place. So once you get the property, we always want to do an inspection, do all that fun stuff. And then how do you get a team in there to do the work, to do the renovation phase? And as you know, during COVID, that was a pain point, right? Like we planned three to four month turnovers and some projects would take seven, eight months, you know, and to get to completion. And I think that was like a communication gap that we needed to really work with our partners that if there's a delay in the process, let us know. And there was one point in time where we continually ask and we wouldn't get that feedback in terms of what well, there's going to be delays. And when they finally did share there's going to be delays, we then you know, worked with other people to like, get us more contractors in that same house and then just work as a team to get that project done. And then that support was only provided because they were able to share that communication back to us that, hey, we're facing delays and we understand like, you know, delays are going to happen. So we didn't want to come out as approach as, you know, you're at a fixed deadline and you got to get this done in time, if not like, you're done and you're toast, but it's more like working with them and saying, what is the barrier you guys are facing? How can we actually jump in without physically going to the city and help you and just give you the resources that you need to solve that problem? So I think that's one of the biggest ones we faced. Property management, you know, I think that's another one that we face and if no one's going to treat the property like it's your own property and, and we understand that, right? So like without having to go there, you know, opportunity costs for that, how do we still manage an effective business, you know, with the right property management teams? So Pri and I, we meet every Sunday, myself and him, and we go through our properties and we have that process in place and we review our numbers on a monthly level. So we try to stay on top of our books and then we see where the money's coming out of so that we can quickly, you know, retroactively talk to the property managers, put a process in place, make sure it's followed. If not, 
you know, provide some feedback to make sure it's getting followed. And those kind of communication gaps, I think, is what we, you know, inherently faced, but have gotten a lot better at, you know, as we start to scale these bigger teams. Yeah. One thing I'll add, incentivizing. So like, how do you incentivize people to do the work for you in some sort of priority basis without being the pain? Like, so I think like one of the things we don't do is follow up every day. So like we purposely just follow up once a week or once a month, even depending on certain things. And we like incentivize them or give them that sort of sense of accountability. So they do it themselves or we'll have a kind reminders on certain things. So if we give them that onus to sort of take it on themselves, I think that piece has been good because a lot of times you sort of get a problem and then no resolution or no recommendation. We'd be like, okay, what do you suggest we should do? Like, I think we just take that sort of approach in like what we do from a management perspective in our careers or in our own businesses and like apply that to the teams there. And then that's something we've like slowly getting people used to. I'd rather do that with somebody I call say like we could build and bring them along in our team versus like changing people continuously because that is going to be a tremendous challenge in trying to operate your business and you can't just look at a certain component like is it just cost sometimes you pay a little bit more management fee or some sort of cost to get that better level of service or you bring them along and like you you make them a key integral part of your team yeah that makes a lot of sense sometimes it's worthwhile paying people a little bit more with some of the cheaper property managers they're going to get that money somewhere else whether that be overcharging you a couple hundred bucks for changing a sink yeah. right? <laughs> exactly People who charge a little bit bigger of a percentage, at least you can count on them being a bit more honest with you. Kind of running off with my use question before we jump into some of the bigger projects you have going on. Since you've made transitions from single families to small multis, small multis to large multis, vacation strategies, that's like four strategies right there within a period of two years. What was the due diligence kind of like changing strategies from one to another? By due diligence, I also mean the learning aspect of it as well, because it's like a totally different sort of uh, maybe you run your numbers in a different way. You need to network with different people, build different team members, so on and so forth. Yeah, for sure. For sure. The single farm, anything that was residential was pretty straightforward, I guess, because of like existing experience and things like that. The commercial, I mean, it became a numbers game at the end of the day. It was fairly easy for us to pick up on those things. But what we found was really effective was talking to a lender directly. I know what it was like. We can work with brokers at the end of the day, and we do work with brokers quite a bit, but talking to a lender. So like we build relationships with account managers at the lenders directly and be like, how are you looking? I mean, like sometimes they would even share some of their like underwriting documents. So like in the sense where like, how are we looking at some of the numbers that we get their numbers that they'd allocate on repairs and maintenance, for an example. So like that really helped us learn because one, it's our own property. And then two, we were directly working with the lender on some of these deals. Yeah, I think that's been a key component. Anything new, like so vacation rentals, there's a lot of resources out there. I remember when I was looking at the vacation rental, I just like the binge watch all, or no, I downloaded Matt McKeever's like the cottage guideline or something like that. And that was my like base before I started looking into with these. I would build a checklist essentially using that as a base. And then whenever I reached out, I would only use local resources. So I use a local lawyer who understood that cottage country and like, key considerations there. So shoreline road allowance and stuff like that. For some reason, I didn't really trust a lawyer here to understand cottage country. I know they can't do it, but I would use the local resources there, similar to building a team to like do the due diligence or help me out with due diligence. Inspector has to be from there. What have they done, right? So those are the things that sort of, I think have helped really truly interviewing and getting people who are experienced in that space to help us along with the due diligence. Also, I just want to add, I think a big shift in our mindset happened when we joined the inner circle, which is part of the Wealth of Genius you know, group. And there's a ton of people coming together with multiple different strategies of how to invest in real estate. And that group itself, I think, talk about James's deal on the self-storage space, right? That came through that group, just understanding the different types of groups and you know, talking to different leaders in that space. I think that's where we really turn that next dial to say, okay, what else can we do in that multifamily space? Still backed by real estate, but go into the business side of it. You know, look at self-storage units like AJ Osborne. I think he's a ton of videos on YouTube. And I think I've watched almost all of them, just like building that knowledge base, reading books on it. I think once you have that confidence level and you have the right people in these inner circles, that's where we leverage to scale up the different types of asset classes that we're currently in. 
That's a perfect transition to the next part. So let's talk about the self-storage side. I do think there was actually a couple of nuggets that you guys said, right? One is a that you joined a group where people were doing completely different things outside of probably the realm and network that you were naturally exposed to, right? That definitely helped you guys. And I also like the using local contractors. I'm buying something in Minden right now, and I am using a contracting team from Belleville, for example, that that will probably do my gig there. The problem with that approach is when there's a maintenance request, who the fuck do I call, right? So, uh, but that being said, the cottage country, I'm sure you kind of face it as well, Pre. Like, did you not find that the contractors were like a lot more expensive and a lot of the, the repairs and maintenance, all that kind of stuff is a lot more expensive? Or do you find that it was reasonable? Like, just curious what yeah. your experience on the outside was. So a challenge with cottage country, I think I probably called. So on the due diligence element, I use everybody local, right? Mm -hmm. So that was important. But on the contractor piece, it was a value add. I think I probably called like 12 different people, including some builders. And at the time, this was in November, 2021, they weren't free until like today. Like they weren't free until like 10 months from now. (laughs) So what I actually use, I used a Toronto contractor there and I paid them to stay there. You can't really get, I had to get them to stay there. They weren't traveling back. Like you had to convince someone to stay there. I paid the extra premium for them to stay there and do the work. But then I now have two maintenance crews essentially, or two, two handymans and then they have essential sub trades. If I need to do any work, I'm not taking anybody locally. So those things came up eventually as part of building relationships, cleaning crews and all of that. They're all local. They have to be local. Yeah. That piece is important because you'll have same day turnovers, right? And then, you might have a maintenance issue on the same day within four hours. Like you're not going to get someone from anywhere else to to come and you need someone local. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, For sure, man. So, so I guess going from there into the commercial stuff, because I think all the commercial stuff really came after you guys had done all the residential, right? How did you do your due diligence on the self-storage in the commercial space? How did you find entering into that? What is self-storage period? Right. For those who don't know, what is self-storage? Yeah, that's a good question. So An easy way to put it is just imagine a bunch of containers on a piece of land where people rent out the specific container to store inventory, home goods, household goods, anything that they find, you know, a need to store it where they can't store it, you know, at their house for multiple different reasons, which we can get into and the different types of tenant profiles you would look for. But that's pretty much it. It's a piece of land that has container units on it, protected through security gates, locks so that your personal belongings are protected and safe. What was the opportunity in self-storage? Because it's an industry that's been there forever, right? So why enter it now? Like, was there any particular opportunity or just numbers made sense? Yeah, so I think it's twofold. One, definitely the numbers make sense. But before the numbers piece even came up, what really attracted us to the self-storage space was the difference in the multifamily space and the self-storage. So from a numbers perspective, you're still going to run your NOIs and your cap rates. But you're avoiding the entire tenant management piece that comes, you know, with a lot of headaches on the multifamily side. Whereas on the self-storage side, the tenant rules are very flexible. Like if someone doesn't pay rent in a month, you, know, you can lock their gates up versus you guys have seen you know, what happens when you know, a tenant doesn't pay one month's rent in a multifamily space. So different rules that are more you know, friendly for landlords on that self-storage space, which I think really attracted us to this. So when we look at the numbers, it just made even more sense, right? Like you're building like 20, 40, 100 units in one plot of land, and then you're renting them out between 50 to $100, just depending on the size of the units. Your NOI is, as a business, you can expand very quickly. And, and that's what made a lot of sense to us because your turnover, you can stay up to that market rent very consistently versus you can have a multifamily space where tenants have been there for you know, 10, 15 years and you're unable to you know, maximize that highest and best use of that land. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but a lot of times with like density changing and, you know, increasing demand and stuff like that, you can usually make an argument for additional units and you can build those additional units a lot easier than in the multifamily space, which makes it easier to increase NOI, right? Exactly. And that's exactly what we're doing with the James deal. You know, I think that was 24 units that was existing and we're just building on that, those plots of acres of land and just expanding that business. What's that process like to just build? Like you have to get permits. What's the cost? Yeah. What are the details behind that? Yeah, so this one's a little bit different in the sense where there was a site plan approval to do a build for about 40 units or so at first, but the operational efficiency here has been like extremely smart. So the way this is actually being done is we're not putting a foundation. There's no slab on grade even. So once you start digging, it's actually considered a build. At that point, you need a permit. You still talk to the city. What the city is okay with is 
the guys are really smart. What they found is like collapsible containers. So they're still durable. But instead of bringing in sea containers, maybe we would have bought in like two, three on a trailer or something like that. Imagine the shipping cost and the cost of the container. They would bring in 15 collapsible containers at a time. And now all you do is you level the ground, you grade it, you make sure water can seep away. So water grading is important. You set up these containers. It takes about two hours to set one up and you set all of them up. And then it's essentially durable containers at that point. You don't need a building permit. I would still talk to the city though, just to let them know here's what's happening, but you don't need a formal building permit. It's only when you dig, start putting foundations, start doing things of that nature. You know, hydro connection, it depends on if you want to do that or not, but you know, you can put like solar panels and you can put like little other devices to get hydro in there. Other than that, you don't need anything else. That's also the other attractive piece about this, right? There's no toilets. There's, there's none of the other things that you would get in multifamily or you'd have in multifamily to manage. But from a business perspective, also like looking at self-storages, people always need a roof over their head in multifamily. Self-storage is another recession resistant type of asset class where there's always these items in storages. As long as there's a demand for it, there's like calculations you look at, you have to do a demand analysis or market demand analysis. But once you look at those elements, you don't just build storage for the sake of building storage. It has to make mm-hmm. sense. But once you look at that, then it's really easy to scale. Yeah. And like to add, like there's three different types of tenants that you'll see. First one is short term. So people that are moving to a specific part of the city and they need you know, a short term rental and they're going to put their stuff in there until they get the keys to the new property. Second one is a long term people that are downsizing as well. And that's very typical in this market right now where people are downsizing and they're moving their belongings that are in the basement into a self-storage unit and downsizing their actual units. And the third type is a more of where there's a lot of opportunity from uh, expansion is the business owners, people that have like an online business and they're entrepreneurs and they're wholesaling and they just need inventory space and you can rent a self-storage unit to no hold your inventory. Mm-hmm. Right, sorry, actually, I just bought a at-home gym and so I went to go meet the guy and he's like, hey, yeah, just come meet me at like my store or whatever. So I, so I pull up into a self-storage unit it's like brand new. It's like five floors. It's like dope building. He's yeah. got like three containers there. And he just like, he's got one that he operates as like a showroom. And so he like walked me into one of them. And then he walked me to the next one to pick up the actual inventory. I'm like, man, this is fucking genius. He's like, yeah, it's way cheaper than like a retail space. And like, you don't really need that shit for like selling like at home gyms. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look at the overhead, right? So like very cheap overhead and you yeah. set it up and maybe he needs hydro or he or she needs hydro. That's all they need. Yeah, it just starts making a lot of sense. So it definitely makes sense. But like, explain to me here, what's the downside? What's like the unknown that people don't necessarily see? Because I think, yeah. so like, I've obviously like followed like the US side and like a lot of people talking about self-storage down there, seen some deals in like other provinces and stuff for, for self-storage. But explain to me uh, from your perspective, you guys identified, okay, this is the asset class that you want to get into, which I'm assuming because you've done a lot of research on the YouTube side and so on, right? What's the roadblock for someone that wants to get into the space? Like, for you guys, like looking to get into the space, like what's the hurdle here? Is it the lack of deals? Is it the lack of inventory in terms of like the number of self-storage facilities that trade? Is it financing? Like what did you guys struggle with on this? Yeah. So the good thing is 70% of it is owner occupied. I mean, sorry, owner, a small business owner that's mm-hmm. running it versus like a REIT. The challenge high level is product market fit. So you, you need to really master the size of unit you want to create that demand. And let's say you throw in now 20 different types of units that is also, that's not good because it's too much selection. Or let's say you have only one type of unit, it's a five by five unit, but people don't need a five by five. They need a 10 by 10. You're out the window. So you really got to master that product market mix. And I think that's probably the biggest challenge that, you know, self-storage owners are facing, even though you may have some vacancies, you might be, you know, super high in demand on a 10 by 10 versus a 10 by 15. So mastering that, I think is a true barrier that people have to, to get down right if they want to make money on this. To add to that, you don't just buy storage for the sake of buying storage and assume that you can fill it out. It doesn't work like yeah. multifamily. You can buy a multifamily building anywhere in a good area and you know you can rent that out. So you can't just buy storage. You can always find deals. You can go on Facebook. You can sign up for these different groups. You can always find deals. I don't know how it actually becomes a deal. That's where you need to do your research, right? So you can always find storages for sale. I think what you need to do the research on is like, what is the market demand? Is there too much storage in this area? So there's like metrics there that you can look at. Is it the right type of storage, right? So maybe one thing I'll mention is you don't have to do this research yourself, right? So like, as an example, like there are companies that do feasibility studies for you. So if you really want to get into some large spaces, 
there are professional companies that do this research for you. And then they can tell you which areas, what type of product makes sense. Are you going to build? Are you going to buy anything existing? So like that doesn't need to be overwhelming. But like the one thing we say is like money can solve a bunch of problems. If you're willing to spend some money on a study, then you can get a good understanding. And now you have a report from a reputable firm that tells you here's where you should go. Right. So there are companies that do good feasibility studies for this exact purpose. Mm -hmm. So let's use that to transition into what you guys are really up to right now. Right. Which is, I think that was pretty organic. So I'm kind of tapping myself in the back for that one, but uh, the (laughs) retirement space, right? So you guys started looking into, I feel like we talked about it maybe a couple months ago. I could be wrong to you guys a couple of times, but you guys started talking about like assisted living facilities and the government programs and so on behind that. How did you guys identify that asset class? What attracted you to it? Is it as widely spoken as self stories? Like, I feel like you guys are really the only ones that I've heard kind of talking about this, right? But how did you go about finding the opportunity? What attracted you to it? And then what did you guys do once you, once you decided you were interested? I want to say it, it sort of kind of came across our desk at one point. And then it was something we assessed and said, okay, is this something that's going to make sense for us? And can we pursue it? So it started about a year ago. And again, it's just networking, right? So we tend to network with brokers quite a bit, like real on the real estate side, just to understand what they're working on and what type of commercial deals they have access to. We saw hotels and we'll see all these different types of deals. And a retirement home actually came up at the time of. And we're like, hmm, interesting, right? Like it's a niche asset class. You don't really get access to it. But like who's selling retirement You've always heard that they can be good, pretty good money makers, but we knew the business. There was a huge business side of it. That's what got us into like, we were actually making an offer on the first retirement home we were looking at. I think maybe that's how we kind of operate because we were ready to go into it. The due diligence side of that piece, just like crazy, like crazy amount of learning, doing the due diligence for that. There are different types of homes. So at a very high level, there's long-term care facilities, there's nursing homes, there's retirement homes, there's independent care facilities, and then there's assisted living facilities as well. They're, ba- they're regulated by different agencies. So there's provincial agencies that regulate certain things like the retirement homes and nursing homes. The assisted living facilities, they're funded by the province, but more so directly by the municipality. So they're like less stringent licensing requirements, but don't get me wrong, there's still a license to operate this business. And I think just through there, we started realizing, okay, the business, there's good cash flowing opportunities. As long as you own the real estate, there's plan B or plan C, however you want to look at it. They trade at higher cap rates. There's an opportunity for value add the same way we do this in multifamily. Care is something that's like, I don't want to broadly say healthcare, but like aging population and care is something that's also falls into what we call like a recession resistant type of space, right? Like, so these type of facilities, they don't really get phased during a recession, all right? And maybe that's a good time to sort of mention like where we are now and what happens during that, right? They really don't, especially when you're like subsidized by the government. All, it, it hit a lot of metrics for us. It hit a lot of checkboxes for us. And yeah, so like over the last year, we started looking at all these different opportunities. And then at this point, we have a facility that we plan on closing in November. In November, awesome. which that's going up. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yes. So really the real estate side, I think we all kind of understand the real estate side of owning the property, but it's really the business side of things that make this extremely interesting because now you're entering a totally different space. That's really, you look at it as two things, owning the real estate and owning the actual business, right? One key thing you mentioned is regulations, which I assume is why you moved more towards assisted living because retirement homes are like extraordinarily heavily regulated by the government. So it's not very easy to jump in. I want to understand when you put this thing under contract, what was that due diligence side of the business like, like beginning to end or where you guys are at right now without getting into too many specifics? Because I know there's probably an NDA sign. Like what is the step-by-step process once you have it under contract? Yeah, I'll start off and then I'll feel free to jump in. You know, I think it starts with getting all the numbers from them first. Obviously, think about it from a multifamily space. You have tenants, you have residents. So you get that up front. There's many different types of costs here and expenses. So you have food expenses, you have garbage expenses, you have legal expenses, accounting expenses, all that stuff. But this space has a lot more, let's call it nitty gritty stuff that we need to uncover up front rather than a multifamily you know, real estate space. I think high level when we were running numbers from an operational point of view, how you look at your income minus expenses, 
the good thing about this facility is about 70% of it is subsidized by the government, which means we're not chasing top line revenue. That is a consistent thing that happens. And there's a wait list for people to come into this home. And so we don't have to chase that top line. Where we need to focus on is, are the expenses you're reporting one accurate? And based on your NTRs that you're filing for taxes, how does that look like versus your current state? So I think food costs is one of the biggest ones. And there's a lot of unknowns in the food costs because how good you track your bookkeeping really tells you. But there's always going to be, if you go to Costco, for example, or Walmart, you're not going to be able to dissect your food costs versus supplies and other stuff that come with that, right? So that's one of the big challenges. The second big challenge I would say is repairs and maintenance. You know, how one, how well is the building upkept in current state? And I think right now, you know, the team puts not the 5% average that you put on your regular traditional you know, multifamily space. So we have to do a lot more due diligence in terms of what does a CapEx schedule look like as of today for the next five years? What is the major work that we need to build in? And then we build that, you know, cost into our current underwriting. But I think food repairs and maintenance, very ambiguous that you need a lot of you know, dissecting into. Pre, anything else you think from a cost perspective? Yeah, I was just going to touch on a due diligence. So it's like, it's crazy because we have probably a hundred point checklist right now on due diligence on specific items. So like I can just rhyme off like major categories, right? Like income, because it's a business. How is income generated for this business? And what are the different sources? What are the opportunities for that income? Then it's like, okay, now reviewing their financial statements with what Dusan mentioned. So in multifamily, sometimes we'll just get a, a pro forma or financial statement from like the realtor or the seller. We can't take that. Like we need your notice to reader statements. And then that's what lenders look at as well. Like so it, we need to know it's gone through an accountant review and there's some sort of basis and certainty to it. Things like amortization or, or depreciation, some like shareholder expenses, like things like that. We need to know if that's actually being considered. So it goes into a lot of level, a lot of detail there. Sometimes you have trust accounts the inspections and CapEx schedule, like Dusan mentioned, staffing. Whole different game now when you have staffing, right? So policies and procedures for staffing. How are you hiring? What is the salary like? What's compensation like? Do you have a union in place? What's the collective bargaining agreement like? So we now engage a labor lawyer to review a collective bargaining because we need to understand the implications of doing something like that. Like, so the true business perspective, training records, then operations. How are you operating? What kind of contracts do you have for food? What kind of contracts do you have for supplies? Who are the contracts with? What sort of elements do you have from an escalation perspective? So we know how we should escalate our prices. So we build a five-year performa. So we look at food prices and we'll be like, probably not going to be at 2% for the next two years. So we look at a, a sensitivity at like 7 8%, for example, on our food prices. So that's how we run a performa. Legal is a whole lot different because when you acquire something like this, how are you structuring it? Yeah. And it goes into a lot more detail at that point. Right. So it's very detailed. Yeah. Yeah. I know the financials for businesses, they can be quite strenuous. Also, just to add on, when I was looking at a business, like one thing that we had to do was we look at seller discretionary earnings or basically what their report, their income is, and you got to make adjustments to it because a lot of the time you're going to incur extra cost if you're going to out for stuff. Or they might say car expense. Well, that might be the personal expense that they've added on that you back out and all of that stuff. And then historical financials as well. To touch on the operational side of things. Now, what due diligence do you do on the operational side? Financials is always one thing, but like you're going to actually have to run the business. So what type of either clauses, I guess you don't want to say the clauses you put in there, but what type of clauses did you learn when writing up an offer of buying something of this magnitude. And also from the operational point of view, like what can you do to best prepare that when you buy this asset, you're not kind of left stranded? Right. Yes. There's standard multifamily type clauses that you might add in there. That's fairly standard. So like your financing condition and the inspection condition, but on the operational side, what do you plan on doing with staff? So are you going to rehire all staff and then put a condition in there? If you want to review their contracts, like are they full-time, part-time, casual? What's their structure like? So if you want to review any of that, you would want to put in your conditions or in our clauses that says here are the things. How we like structuring it is we just call it due diligence. And then we just rhyme out key things that we want to see and then in categories. So we'll be like staffing and here are all the things. Just think about things you might want to see. And just put it into an Excel or put it into a Word document. Just start categorizing it 
And there's always some language to cover that. Yeah. You have an overarching condition. And then under that, you, you try to list out as many kind of things just so that you're setting expectations with the seller up front. Exactly. Right? And, yeah. and they give you the documents that they need at that point. Right. And you uncover stuff and you'd be like, okay, I need more documents or I need something else that I like to see. If you have a good relationship, you always get that. It's not necessarily based off the contract. Again, I'm not recommending that. I'm saying try to get everything you can early on, but there are things that'll come up after the fact, right? So for example, we knew there was a union in place for this. So we asked for a copy of the collective bargaining agreement. So then you find out, okay, then you read through it and be like, what are the risks that we need to consider here? There's policies and procedures in place for staffing. We care about an org chart. What does an org chart currently look like at the facility? So yeah, their due diligence from that perspective, and we'll write that in and or ask for that while we go through the process. And of course, the real estate agent's going to help you throughout the process too. Just to add to that, I think another benefit is when we went to Windsor and, and took a look at this, one of the good things is there's a good executive team boots on the ground. And you have executive directors, you have a director of operations who really understand this current home. And they've been there for, you know, 10 plus years. And so they have a very good understanding. So we've asked, like, we want to see every SOP you have in your books. What do you do when this happens? And in this kind of space, I think it's, God forbid, you know, someone passes away. Like, what do you do in that situation? And showcase to us that, you know, this team is competent. So if you look at the average, like there's about 40 employees on this team and the average tenure is about eight years. So there's a lot of experience. With a unionized environment, you know, that's like the underlying benefit where there's job security. So you have a lot of people there that have high tenure and know what, how to run the business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The due diligence might seem scary, but as you go through this, you know, you know, these are things you'll figure out. What we care about fundamentally, and maybe I'll just pull back a little bit, is we realize as we were looking at these type of facilities that you can look at homes. You've probably seen these homes in like just neighborhoods that have like They look like a residential home on the outside. They might have like 10 bedrooms or something like that. And you'll see activities occurring. Those are actually like group care homes. They could be licensed. They have to be licensed. You have to meet fire code, electrical code, health inspection on an annual basis. And then what we wanted to do is not really be operators. We wanted to be owner investors, but provide feedback on or run the operation side of things as needed when necessary, but on a high level or perspective. So then we started looking at scale. Our rule of thumb started becoming 50 beds or more. At 50 beds or more, you can hire an executive director that's taking care of the operations. You hire right, right? Again, there's ways to hire right. You hire right. So they deal with the day-to-day. What we don't want to do is build an intake form for a resident. That's not where we add value. Where we add value is how do we increase top line and revenue and how do we improve bottom line from an expense perspective? That's why we started looking at 50 beds or more. The numbers start changing. It's bigger numbers, but like that's where it gets exciting as well. Gotcha. So you kind of answered my question. What I was going to ask is where's the value opportunity? So I guess in the beds, but is there any way to quote unquote force appreciation on the revenue side? I know on the expense side, you were saying just really analyzing, taking a look down at everything and seeing if it's necessary or not. But on the revenue side, is there any way to really drive value forcefully? Yeah. And I'll touch on a few points. One is the number of beds you can expand to. So currently the facility is licensed for 130 beds and we're operating at 120. So there's an opportunity there to increase that extra 10 beds. And then there's two different types of residents. There's the subsidized version and then there's the privatized side. So how do you tap into that privatized side and see is there any additional care services that you want to provide that provide that top line revenue? There's agreements that is currently in place with the pharmacy in terms of being the exclusive provider to this specific type of facility. And then there's ways to generate revenue from them directly. So those are, I think, the top three ways that we're looking at to increase revenue. Pre, I don't know if you have any other ones. Yeah, the small stuff, like there's a hair salon inside the facility and currently they don't charge the lease for it, right? Like, so it's like small improvements like that where we know we can go in. And then everything else is like almost multifamily fundamentals. So like, fluorescent lighting. There's fluorescent lighting in a 24,000 square feet facility. We know we're going to change that to LED and all of a sudden you're going to see efficiencies there. So those multifamily efficiency mm-hmm. principles can definitely be applied there. Meanwhile, we want to keep a lot of the stuff constant. We want to keep the staff constant. That's what's running the operations. Where we want to focus on is like utilities and different things like that, where we know we can add in different, a different value. 
subsidies and grants. I'll mention that as a big piece where I like work on grant programs and funding programs all the, all the time, like working with the federal and provincial government. We want to make sure we can find opportunities to bring in more subsidies and grants to a facility like this. And that's a value add that adds to your bottom line. So I know everyone listening to this is basically just going to assume that you guys are just fucking balling, right? And you're going to take this down, right? So let's talk a little bit about how you take down a project like this, right? So that could be financing. It could be the structure. It could be, you know, just kind of the back end that really like no one talks about when it comes down to like how they actually go about taking down a deal like this. Cause I'm sure a, the checks that you guys have cut so far have probably been pretty significant. Right. And they're going to be even bigger as you get closer to closing. Right. So let's talk a little bit about that. We've been pretty fortunate with our relationships that one of uh, people we brought on board is an advisor and he's worked in this space and his own, you know, I think six or seven different types of homes stabilized, exited. And now he's like a full-time consultant in this space. So we've really tapped into that relationship where he's brought on a lenders that are willing to fund this type of deal. And so we're trying to push out to that 75% LTV and the DSRs look great because cash flows. So, and not all branches do this. So with this specific a lender, this branch is the only one that does this type of assisted living facilities versus if you go to a different branch, same a lender, they don't touch it. Right. So that was, we got to that level because of the connections we had and the network that we've built with this specific advisor. Um, and then the rest on the raise, Pri, do you want to mention on how we want to structure that? Yeah, sure. Dusan touched on the management team, and I think that's important, right? So whenever you look at something like this, sure, you can have a little bit of your own capital. I think one, you need to be invested in the deal. So like like we mentioned before, we're putting our own capital in when it comes to the due diligence, and we're going to obviously have our own capital in when it comes to closing the deal as well. But what's the management team? So whenever you go talk to potential investors, who's managing like the risk always looks at it as like, how are you managing a business at the same time? Like, do you have the time to do it? So one talked about the advisor. So we look to bring on the right people who've done this multiple times before that we can now, there's some synergies in what we do. So Doosan's operational skill set, my skill set when it comes to working with the government and funding programs and things like that. And our combined multifamily with an advisor who's done this like time and time over again. After that, who's on the ground? What's the team look like? that they can manage this on an ongoing basis. Then it comes down to the deal and your relationships with people, right? So at the end of the day, if potential partners or investors can see the value in what you're looking to do, I think the biggest value and what we see as the most exciting part of this is one, this is a project in itself. Two, you can really scale this business. Maybe at a very high level, I've just mentioned this. It's very hard to do this, but in the long-term care space as an example, our advisor was actually able to take someone from like 20 units and work with them. They've done this organically where they got it to like 800 units and their net earnings were close to like $9 million a year. Now a private REIT is looking at that portfolio for $110 million. So like now you can really exit from a business at like huge multiples or at multiples and which is what's important, right? So like, can you scale this business? Can you scale the systems? Have you built the right team around you where you're not really working on the business on a day-to-day, but you can bring on the right people. So we essentially look to bring on investors who are aligned with that thought process and are invested in that opportunity. And that's really the play at that point in time, right? Uh, yes, it's large values, but you know, I think if we can showcase our ability and then we have the right people around us, it takes some time and experience. And when you look to qualify for these large deals, you also have to build a little bit of a network. So you do have to start somewhere, but it does eventually occur, I think. Are you guys following the GPLP model? Essentially what you guys are implementing here as well. Do you find that to be the most effective model or why don't we explain what GPLP is? They realize not, maybe not everyone knows that, right? So if you want to explain that as well. Sure, sure, sure. So there's, you know, GP stands for general partner, LP stands for limited partners. In the private equity side, this is done quite a bit where you'll have a project or multiple projects where you have a GP, which is a group of people that are maybe bringing the deal that are securing the financing and then that they'll be guaranteeing the loan as well. And then they take some sort of equity stake in the project or a set of projects that, that come up. The LPs are limited partners where they're from a legal perspective, they have limited liability. That's what it stands for. They have some sort of ownership stake in this. And then you can get creative. This is where you can get really creative, where they might get preferred returns. They might get distributions based on some waterfall methods. So like those are all these different things that you can start looking into for us. This could be a deal that we could do a GPLP on, but we're not. So we're going to do it as a corporation that owns the asset, common shares, non-voting shares, and preferred shares. 
that's how we're we're doing this for this transaction specifically. Hmm. Why'd you guys decide to go that route? GPLP takes like 60 days, so we're closing oh, yeah, in November. Yeah, yeah. We, did, we did talk <laughs> yeah. about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so it, it takes some time to do it. It's also an expensive process. Yeah. And it depends, right? So for example, we're limiting the amount of people that are coming on directly on the corporation. So we're looking for accredited investors at the end of the day that are coming in with a certain amount of capital and that they they feel comfortable directly going on the corporation. But that's how we're structuring it. You have other ways to do this as well. You can have JV agreements and, and things of that nature, but it's all possible. It's just when we have discussions with our lawyers, they're like, just like, okay, like, honestly, any of these can work. What do your partners or investors put that essentially feel comfortable with? Everything is just language. So that's what we've learned, right? How do you want to describe the language? And then as long as you can describe that in, on a piece of paper, that essentially determines or defines your. All right, guys. I think that was a dope episode. I think we covered actually a crazy amount of topics there in one episode, but hopefully everyone right. you know, gets really good value of that. So at this time, we usually ask you guys two questions, right? So the first and probably a great question for you guys, but where do you guys see your, your business five years from now? Yeah, I think definitely, you know, we want to be that niche market and focus significantly on the, on the specific assisted living facility. And I'd say five years from now, and our goal right now is as we close this property, we stabilize it and then, you know, we optimize it to the point where we take that money and we're buying more assisted living facilities. And I think as pre-mentioned earlier, this is a very rare asset class. So the opportunities that come up are limited one. And then the ability to execute on a deal is twofold because you need to be able to showcase that you have experience in this market. And that's where our advisor came on board to really help us with this due diligence phase. If we can master this project, you know, in the first couple of years, stabilize it, our goal is to expand this, you know, assisted living facility, you know, even further. Perfect. For taking things, you know, 180, you guys started off two years ago, a very different climate from what we're in now, but for new investors that are just getting started off in their journey. What do you guys see as like the main risk, the main you know mistake that people make, any kind of advice or feedback that you have for people? I'll go first, I guess, and then Pri can follow up. I think the biggest risk is, you know, in today's climate, you need to be able to run your numbers very conservatively. You know, with interest rates rising, you need to be able to make sure that on your exit strategy, your ARV is tr- a true ARV and you're counting for your, your DCRs, so your debt coverage ratios. And what we're seeing is from a lending perspective, if your DCR is not at that 1.2 mark, your LTV, so your loan to value is going to drop significantly. And the days of, you know, getting 80% loan to value and then on the refi getting another 80%, I don't think we're in that climate right now. So on the exit strategy, it's very important, I think, especially new investors, run their numbers conservatively on an interest rate and then run your cap rates, make sure you're conservative so that the money that you're pulling out is the true money you expect to pull out. One thing I'll add there is like, there's risks and then there's ways you might want to look at from a de-risking perspective as well, right? So new investors, I think, you know, you just have to get started, right? So there's lots of like resources out there, lots of ways to gain knowledge, but different people learn different ways. Connecting with people, like just look at the people around you and what your circle is like. You'll sort of see like what each of them are working on, right? So be maybe participating in, in certain groups that might be focused on something that you're interested in. If you're not interested, yeah, what's the most, you don't lose anything, right? You gain some knowledge and you go on to something else, right? You gain knowledge, but at the end of the day, you have to take action. So once you take action with the knowledge that, that you've gained, either like we started uh, JV with you, right? So mm-hmm. we really felt comfortable with that piece because we know we knew or our thought process was here's an experienced investor that's going to lead us through the process. And then we learn from them. And then let's see if we can do that ourselves after the fact. So there's ways to do that. And I think newer investors, if they feel a lot more comfortable or someone's guiding them, whether that be a coach putting their money into another deal with another investor or do it themselves if they feel comfortable after the knowledge, those are all different ways to like de-risk. But I would say, don't just look at a YouTube video and just do something and then not really have all the pieces that you need in, in place. But once you do, it depends on the level. Once you do those, that's a great way to learn. Like that's really a good way to sort of get educated. All right, guys. I love it. You guys have definitely come a long way. I think from when we first started talking, it's super inspirational. Like I think, I think what you guys are up to is, is, is great for a lot of our listeners as well. Appreciate you guys jumping on the podcast. If anyone wants to get in touch with you guys, how can they do that? Yeah, thinking of social media for sure. On the Instagram side, do send out Lou Ventures or Bri.Ude Kumar. And we also have our you know Lou Ventures page. So you can always look up Lou Ventures 
and get in contact with us there. Perfect. What's the Instagram? Is it LOO Ventures? Yeah. Yeah. Ventures.realestate. And then uh, we're, we're going to start building our, we're going to do a branding exercise soon. We, we actually hired our first VA who's an executive assistant. So it's, uh, it's going to be good now where we can offload a lot of those elements and build on that. So we've been sort of on the background and doing a lot of these things, but now I think we'll be a lot more active on that piece, hopefully through there, but that's the best way to reach us just just social and my, and also thank you. Thank you for, for having us. It's, it's been great. Awesome guys. All right, guys. So hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Make sure you guys comment and subscribe, share the episode with anyone that you think might be interested in this. And once again, I don't remember how Austin ends off these podcasts. He had to jump off like two minutes early <laughs> and he usually does this, but you know, tune in next week guys.